Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Lawmakers saw more starts and stops this week as they tried to wrap up the session by Friday, but a resurrected library debate stalled adjournment plans. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Senate Minority Leader Michelle Stennett joins me to discuss her view of this session's successes and disappointments. Then, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press give us the latest on the legislature's scramble toward adjournment. But first, gubernatorial hopeful Shelby Ronstad, who planned to run as a Democrat, announced Monday that he will file as a write-in candidate for governor after learning last week that he will not be on the primary ballot this May. As Idaho Reports first reported, Ronstad has affiliated as a Republican voter since at least 2014, so he could participate in local GOP primaries. On Thursday, Ronstad kicked off his write-in campaign at the State House. On Thursday, Governor Brad Little signed a Texas-style fetal heartbeat abortion bill that would allow family members of the pregnant woman's fetus to sue abortion providers. In Little's transmittal letter, he expressed concerns about the unintended consequences the bill may have on sexual assault victims. Little wrote, quote, the legislation risks re-traumatizing victims by affording monetary incentives to wrongdoers and family members of rapists, unquote. We'll have much more with Kevin and Betsy later in the show. On Monday, the House took up a long-anticipated early childhood literacy bill, which provides flexible funds for school districts to use for programs, which could include full-day kindergarten. This bill is not an appropriation bill. This bill is saying that from this point forward, we're going to start distributing any literacy money. The money we've been doing in the past would be impacted by this. Any future monies would be impacted that we're not going to distribute this money based upon failure. We're going to start distributing this money based half of it upon success. And the other half, of course, is going out enrollment. The point, part of the point is, if you think about it, you have a classroom of students, uh, 20, 25 students, and half of them are proficient, half are not. You don't just ignore half. So having sending money out to these teachers so they can maintain their proper education for all of their students is important, but the schools are gonna be incentivized to get their students to move from below basic to basic, basic to proficient, and maintain their proficiency. And I think that's important to know. This is, in fact, a full-day kindergarten bill. And I think I've changed my mind, and I'm going to vote no. We have not had the policy discussion that represents many households, many families in this state who do not want their five-year-old to be in a full-day kindergarten. The bill passed the House in a 40 to 29 vote, and on Wednesday, it passed the Senate in a 31 to 3 vote. It now heads to the governor. 
On Tuesday, the Senate passed a workforce housing development bill that would use $50 million from the American Rescue Plan Act to help fund affordable housing. Senator Jeff Agenbrod said the rent rate at the properties must be affordable to 80% of the area's median income residents. Bill sponsors said that funding could help create about 1,000 additional housing units in Idaho. Workforce housing, and I don't disagree with, this, with the sponsor of the bill, that workforce housing is a critical issue. However, it's not something we are constitutionally obligated to provide or provide funding for. And I think we have a shortfall in what we've seen for our school facilities, and we have a constitutional obligation uh, to work on those types of things. And I've been disappointed with some of the things that haven't moved forward on that this session. We have teachers and nurses and principals living in RVs out on the forest because they cannot get housing. And we have tried to hire staff in our schools, particularly those the most difficult ones, which are our specialty, um, uh, special needs. And we have had to break contracts because they cannot get any housing. And at some point, it does start to break down our systems that we are constitutionally responsible for. We need people, uh, we need services, uh, we need people that can work in the uh, hospitals, uh, can be EMTs, can be uh, uh, firemen, policemen, teachers. Uh, this is one effort to help them a little bit. This isn't the total answer, but it is a step in the right direction. Thank you. That bill now heads to the governor. The House also narrowly passed another component of workforce development, which would put $15 million in ARPA funds to pay for child care infrastructure grants targeted at expanding daycare options, with the idea of getting more parents back to work amid nationwide child care shortages. That passed in a 38-32 vote. While it wasn't their first choice, on Tuesday the Senate passed a bill that would increase the grocery tax credit by $20. The food tax credit was implemented in 2008, uh, which was before maybe all of us but Senator Stennett were here. And um, it's been unchanged since 2015. In 2015, it got raised to $100 uh, for residents and $120 for seniors. And so if you take from 2015 and you take an inflation calculator using the consumer price index, it showed that it should be $118 um, for residents and $141 for senior citizens. And so really all this does is get the food tax credit up to compensate for inflation over the last seven years. And with the recent bump in inflation, it probably doesn't even cover that. It is pretty discouraging that uh, we are looking at $20 of a food credit, given how expensive food is getting, um, and that we have to wait till 2023 for them to get it. Um, but we didn't seem to have any um, ability to do anything better than that, and similar to the last bill where we still have people falling through the cracks and in fixed incomes and we can't seem to get it fixed. Um, this is better than nothing, but it is pretty discouraging that we can't seem to do better for our people. But I appreciate that there is something out there. Thank you, Madam President. That bill passed the Senate unanimously after passing the House in a 42-27 vote. It now heads to the governor. 
On Thursday, the House killed a bill in a 33-36 to 36 vote to fund the Idaho Commission for Libraries after accusations the libraries were distributing obscene materials to children. There is no First Amendment right to harm a child by exposing them to graphic sexual material. These are materials that can't be posted on YouTube. They can't be published in the newspaper. They couldn't be distributed on the House floor. But these are professionals and a professional organization who are actively defending their ability to place these materials in sections of the library available to children. We're so far away from what this bill is about and trying to inject all this fear and doubt when in fact we have evidence presented to us that the person in charge of this agency recognized there was a problem and took action to solve it. Why can't we just leave it there? If the head of the Commission of the Libraries ignored uh, the thing and ignored the concern, uh, then maybe, we have a, maybe we'd have a, a, a basis for this discussion. But they took the action we would want them to take. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm still listening for where um, there's any positive indication that the Commission of Libraries wants to promote pornography for children. The Joint Budget Committee put out a new Commission for Libraries budget on Friday. We'll have all the details with Kevin and Betsy later in the show. Senate Minority Leader Michelle Stennett won't seek re-election after serving nearly 13 years in the legislature. She joined me on Thursday to discuss what she considers the successes and failures to be from this year. Thanks so much for joining us today. To start, in your view, what are the successes of this legislative session? Well, I think that uh, one, my own personal uh, bill was the essential caregiver bill. That was something that as we were rolling out from COVID and even before COVID, we didn't have consistent policy amongst the uh, medical facilities about how they would allow people to come in as a patient advocate for um, the patient themselves. And it became uh, very uh, apparent that we needed to allow for that kind of visitation. Some people can't speak for themselves. Some people are in, in, in crisis. Um, and so whether it is a family member or um, a, um, a, another healthcare provider or patient advocate, however it is that they had that ability to be accompanied by someone so that they had the care that they needed. I, I listened to every one of those hearings and I also listened to dozens of public health district meetings over the course of the pandemic. And over and over again, we heard stories about people whose loved ones were in the hospital or in nursing home facilities who were isolated because of visitor restrictions. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's something that just now got addressed with your legislation and an attempt from Representative Young in the mm -hmm. House. Mm -hmm. uh, what sort of feedback have you gotten on that? Wonderful feedback. Um, I don't think I've had anybody dissenting. Uh, I, we wanted to make sure that the medical facilities, hospitals and uh, residential facilities so on felt comfortable with it. But the bill does say that you do have to follow the facilities protocols. We just don't want you just cavalierly walking in the door and, and not um, making sure that you're, you're mindful of what everybody else in the facility and, and their protocols. So um, it was with the work of uh, the medical association and various facilities that we did craft the language so that you still have access respectfully, um, but then a person would be able to be accompanied, which I think is long overdue. 
What other highlights of this legislative session stand out to you? Well, we did have some object objectional language in tenant policies, which um, was uh, remarkably well received in both the House and the Senate, about taking uh, making sure that there is more equitability and um, some of the language about tenant um, policies, that there was cleanup on that. And I think that was, again, just um, some of it's archaic language and some of it was intentional. Some of, It just needed to make sure that there was um, uh, that the tenant had the ability to have uh, a say in the process and that it wasn't so landlord heavy. Um, but I think the it was very carefully crafted. I believe it was Senator Wintrow who brought it forward and um, worked a lot with uh, both tenants and landlords about how we could navigate to where it is a more comprehensive and, and clearer um, co contractual arrangement. And so it, it was just very well done. And I think that both bodies recognized that it was time to make those changes. For people who weren't familiar with the issue or following this bill, what were some of the covenants that Senator Wintrow was concerned with? Well, I'm trying to remember all of them. Some of them were um, having to do with race. Some were having to do with um, um, it just somewhere having to do with family size, what you, uh, what, it, it was, it, it really was quite a convoluted smatterings of things that you wouldn't, you would have thought long ago it wasn't part of a covenants. Um, but a discriminatory it, very, covenants yes, exactly. from the 50s and 60s. That's exactly right. More archaic language that hadn't been addressed. Um, I'm sure there is more out there, but we tried to pull everything we could to make sure that that was cleaned up. But um, it was, like I said, overdue for making sure that that doesn't persist. What were some of the disappointments this year for you? I think what uh, continually disappoints me is, is we go into a legislative session knowing full well what the people have told us they want. And we consistently end up adjourning not having addressed those issues. And a classic example is doing meaningful property tax relief, just a clean property tax relief. Um, a lot of because of the escalation in prices, inflation on food. Could we do something even if it wasn't a full grocery re, uh, repeal? Could we do uh, some kind of relief? There are ways of going about it where you could have um, with people and under a certain economic level would get relief, something like we would do with, um, with SNAP or food stamps where you're not waiting for a small stipend to come at the end of a year. Um, instead, you would get it as you're purchasing, which is more immediately immediate relief. Unfortunately, the only thing we were capable of passing, which we just did yesterday, was $20 given back at the end of, I think it doesn't even start until 2022 or something like that. 2024, or I Or something, right. yes. It's, it's so far out, and it's only $20. And it comes at the end of the year. It is an immediate relief. It's a long time before it comes into play. $20 is nothing. It isn't going to be a meaningful um, relief. And those are the kinds of things that we have been asked again and again, which we can't seem to um, to accomplish by the time the session is over. When it comes to issues like bumping up the grocery tax credit by $20 per person or the circuit breaker uh, doing 150% instead of right. 200%, is it better to have these little bites of the problem or would you rather the legislature hold back and wait and take its time and then tackle the problem holistically, even well, if it takes longer? Well, philosophically, um, some of those that said no to those bills have been the biggest advocates for passing meaningful legislation that does more. And I understand their protest. I'm of the opinion that at least, even if it's a little, little bite, we can always come back and do more of a bite, or again, something else that even repeals it and does 
something more meaningful. Um, I, it's unfortunate that, as in the case of the circuit breaker, all of the counties told us that you had to bring it back up to 200% because when we passed the law last year, it threw so many of our seniors and veterans and people with disabilities under the bus, inadvertently probably, and that 200% was the only way to capture them all back. So why would we pass something that says only 150% knowing full well there are gonna be hundreds of people who are still falling through the cracks when we could have just risen it to 200 and at least reclaimed those that that lost their um, their compensation. So um, it's those sorts of things. I would have preferred that because at least it did capture some. But is that really good policy making? And so I keep hoping that you'll get a little bit of something rather than nothing. But I understand the the discontent of this is this is an insult to to people who really desperately need our help. We have more with Senator Stennett online. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. Joining me today to discuss the end, maybe, of the legislative session are Kevin Richard from Idaho Education News and Betsy Russell from the Idaho Press. Uh, Kevin, I wanna start with you. What's the latest on the debate over libraries? Well, it seems to be going on now on two fronts, on the, the budget front and on the policy front. Earlier on Friday, the uh, Joint Finance Appropriations Committee met again to try to write a library's budget that might pass, cut three and a half million dollars out of the budget. This is federal funding that would have gone into technology projects, and that's a big cut. We'll see now what happens with that budget as we speak here on Friday afternoon, we're not sure yet. And there's a House resolution that would create a working group to study and look at obscenity, pornography, and libraries. No, and, and this is a debate that I listened to on Thursday afternoon. Concerns that obscene materials are ending up in children's hands in the children's section in libraries. And listening to the, that debate, it, it almost sounded like people were concerned that copies of Hustler were tucked in next to Ranger Rick in the children's section. I mean, that was the tone that the debate was taking. They're, they're, they were using the word pornography. What, what's actually going on here, Betsy? So, I mean, even if you look at what basically the members of the House consider to be the worst of the worst, the examples of the, quote, smut that they're so concerned about, the items that they put in what they called a super secret folder and passed around the House floor when they had their debate on House Bill 666, those were not copies of Hustler or anything like that. There was a sex education textbook um, called It's Perfectly Normal. Um, and there were some teen coming-of-age novels, some of them with LGBTQ themes, and there were some adult books, some memoirs. Um, and with explicit scenes, to be clear. Right, but those are not in the children's section of the library. Those are the adult section. The teen books are in the teen section. The sex education book for children, as I understand it, is in a, it's a youth sex education book that's placed in a place uh, where it's accessible to those over age 10. But this was not, uh, there, I don't think that there's any evidence that there's pornography in the children's section of our libraries where kids go for story time and to read their board books. And these debates have a tangible effect on budgets. I mean, this is very reminiscent of what we saw last year with the debate over higher education, but here's the difference. The higher education budget cuts came to about two and a half million dollars spread across three universities in a budget of more than $300 million of general fund dollars. Here we're talking about $3.5 million, and this is federal money, so it's not general fund money, but it's $3.5 million out of a small library commission budget. I mean, this is a pretty big bite out of the budget if that's the budget that winds up passing. Any indication on whether what the, so, so 
to go back to the policy side of this. The House has introduced a bill as of 3.30 on Friday afternoon. They've introduced a bill to form a working group to look at obscene materials that might be available to minors. Resolution, and a the resolution. word's very important because it's a House resolution that means that it doesn't have to go to the Senate. So it bypasses this whole impasse that we've seen between the House and the Senate over House Bill 666, which passed the House on nearly a party line vote the Senate has refused to take up. So House resolution, if it passes the House, that's it, working group, game over. With no public hearing, to be clear. There, it exactly. went straight it went to the second reading. To, and that resolution has some pretty strongly worded whereas clauses um, saying that it is inappropriate to provide obscene or explicit material to children in libraries and that this is um, illegal and that this is a matter of great importance to the state. All those statements are in there quite strongly, but mm -hmm. it is just a resolution. The question is, is this enough to satisfy those who opposed the Commission for Libraries budget, which died on a 36 to 33 vote? And I have been in touch just within the last few moments with Representative Wendy Horman, who was the sponsor of that budget bill, um, and who also strongly supported House Bill 666, the uh, bill to criminalize librarians if children get access to explicit material in libraries. And I asked her if she is now supporting this budget um, that newly came out of JFAC this morning, which makes more cuts to libraries. It cuts another three and a half million and it comes out of technology grants to libraries. Um, and she said no. And I thought, oh my, is she gonna oppose this budget? Because when she opposes a budget that she helps craft, that's very persuasive to the House and they tend to kill the budget. And then I asked her why. And she said it's because she opposes the cuts and feels that internet grants to local libraries are crucial right now and they should not be punished by having that funding removed. So that does mean though that the budget loses one vote because she was the sponsor and of course voted for it and it will need to pick up three to pass. This is a tough budget vote to handicap here because Betsy nailed it on the head here. I mean, they're gonna lose some votes on the House floor probably from people who are upset to see the three and a half million dollar cut in the technology. You're also going to see, and we saw it in debate in JFAC on Friday morning, Ron Nate saying this, these cuts aren't big enough. We should take even more out of this uh, budget. So, And he even tried to make a substitute motion mm -hmm. to cut another one and a half million out of the library, the Commission for Libraries budget, basically every new initiative they were proposing for next year, in addition to the three and a half million and the 307,000 that Representative Horman had already sliced out because of this issue. He didn't get a second. His motion died for lack of a second in JFAC. Not really news here. It's hard to get 36 yes votes on the House floor for a budget. But who could have predicted that we'd be sitting here on day 75 talking about the Idaho Commission on Libraries budget as the going home budget bill of the session? I have seen stranger ha stranger things happening in this very legislature, so no, 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 can't, no. can't say I'm surprised. <laughs> uh, you know, I so much has happened this week. I do want to get to Governor Little's veto, not veto letter, his, trans, his transmittal letter for the abortion bills. And the reason I called it a veto, not veto letter, when you read it, it sounds like a veto letter. He lists all of his concerns with the legislation, but he signed it anyway. And it sounds like a lot of transmittal letters, or at least a couple of transmittal letters that we've seen from the governor in the past couple of years. House Bill 377, the indoctrination bill last year, the, you know, the reapportionment legislation that wound up getting shot down in court. We've heard this 
shtick from Governor Lil before. Hey, most here's a list of my concerns. Um, his, v, uh, his signing letter of Senate Bill 1110, the initiative law last year, in which he um, indicated that it likely was unconstitutional, but he would leave that up to the Idaho Supreme Court to weigh in. Now, the difference in this one is it goes much further. He says that he believes it is unconstitutional, and this is not a matter for the Idaho Supreme Court. This is a matter for the U.S. Supreme Court. So basically, the governor was saying that he knowingly signed into law a bill that he believes to be unconstitutional, and that he is with those pushing the law on principle um, as an uh, opponent of abortion, but he's calling on the legislature to fix this bill and address the constitutional problems with it, its lawsuit mechanism and so, so forth. Of course, they can't do that to fix a bill they just passed with an emergency clause. It takes effect in 30 days. He called on them to fix it next year. Next year, it will have been on the books for a year. Well, and, and next year, there will likely have been a legal challenge to it, and who knows what's gonna happen with the, the legal challenges with the Texas law that this was modeled on. And in fact, by next year, the U.S. Supreme Court may have overturned Roe v. Wade, and there may be a completely different legal picture on this entire issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kevin, I wanna talk to you about this lukewarm reception that we've seen from lawmakers on some of the major initiatives this year. Yeah, I'm thinking the grocery tax credit, uh, the literacy initiative, uh, the circuit breaker mm -hmm. to reduce property tax burdens on people. There, there seems to be a theme of this is better than nothing. Yeah, this feels like the best we can do kind of legislative session on a lot of fronts. And I think expectations were so high when you come into town and you have a $1.9 billion surplus and you've got a lot of ideas about how you want to see that carved up, whether we're talking about new initiatives or we're talking about tax relief. I think it's inevitable that you're gonna have lawmakers across the spectrum saying, is a $46 million kindergarten program that isn't really a kindergarten program, that's a literacy program, is that the best we can do for all day kinder? Is the income tax bill, going back to the very beginning of the session, the first bill that passed, the income tax reductions that lawmakers were lukewarm about even then because they said, this is taking money off of the table, mark our words, we're not gonna be able to do grocery taxes, we're not gonna be able to do property tax reform. They were right. Yeah, I, I think you, it shouldn't be surprising that you have so many lawmakers on so many fronts feeling like, yeah, meh, it's the best we, got, best we could do this year. Well, it's funny, when, when we had so much of a projected surplus going into this session, you know, $1.6 billion, which is a, a huge percentage of Idaho's budget every year, uh, are you surprised that we didn't see more bold initiatives besides income tax cuts and a $20 grocery credit? Well, actually, we did see bold initiatives on investing a lot of those surplus funds and also investing the Federal American Rescue Plan Act aid funds, which were huge, another billion dollars to the state. And the governor made all kinds of proposals to put those into key types of investments, $300 million to upgrade sewer and wastewater plants at, at, in small communities across Idaho is an example and a big one. He proposed $100 million to upgrade broadband across Idaho. Um, he proposed $25 million for child care infrastructure uh, grants. The legislature did not go along with all those, but it went partway. They funded, they did fund the full $300 million for the wastewater and sewer infrastructure upgrades. Which is huge for small communities Absolutely. that don't have the tax it base. Is, it is Absolutely. a game changer for those communities. Um, the 
House killed the, the Department of Commerce budget because they didn't like the broadband funding. They thought it was ARPA funds, and actually that money is not even from ARPA, it's from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, but so that got cut down to less. Um, but they could still come back and, and approve the rest of it next year. Uh, they cut the child care infrastructure grants from 25 million to 15 million, but they did approve the 15 million. And so there are, and, and also the governor proposed and the legislature passed a $200 million um, ongoing investment in, in our um, local bridges. Uh, Actually, I don't know now. Is that ongoing, Kevin? Maybe that's one time. But what that does is it wipes out a third of our backlog of deteriorated bridges that need to be replaced. So there are some significant things that have been funded, big investments this session, that are going to have impact for generations in Idaho. And, and the legislature could go all in on the governor's proposals on using ARPA for the Empowering Parents grants, for teacher bonuses, and another round of teacher And affordable housing, $50 million. First Thanks time so ever. much for the latest on Sine Die. Check out our online coverage as well as Kevin and Betsy's blogs. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.